you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Hey there, and welcome back to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Wow, you got to stay tuned to this episode. Mr. Jesse Vasquez has so many key learnings about how to dominate your competition through market leadership and really understanding what he calls the four quadrants, okay? Which concept does yours fit? And near and dear to my heart is the concept of food cost versus true ultimate bottom line profit. There are so many operators making that mistake, and you're going to find out why we would rather sell a steak with a 40 percent food cost than a pasta with a 20 percent food cost okay so hang on jesse has uh put in an episode prior several weeks ago but i just had to bring him back because of all the key learnings he brought to the first episode and you're going to find that to be true in this one as well so stay tuned Hey everybody, welcome back to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. I am really excited because a couple of weeks ago, my guest, Mr. Jesse Vasquez, was one of my absolute favorite guests. You know, it's rare that I get a chance to sit down with someone who shares so many similar philosophies on how to run restaurants and you know, Jesse is a true operator's operator. He's not only run his own restaurants, but he's been also on the franchise side, both on the corporate side of things, building franchises around the globe, but running his own. And now he's consulting and he does great work introducing new chefs to the business. So welcome back to the show, Jesse. It's exciting to have you again so soon. Oh, Roger, thank you so much for having me back. Um, yeah, this is great, and I can't wait to jump into some of the topics that uh, we're going to review today. And uh, I hopefully, we'll be able to add some value to restaurateurs that uh, are out there trying to uh, make a make a go of it. Well, that's just one of the reasons why I'm really enjoying these conversations, Jesse, because it really is all about how to help other operators you know, not only succeed, but really take it to the next level. And you are just a wealth of information in that area. And we agree on most everything we talk about. So I think we'll share lots of valuable information today. You reached out to me with two new topics that are definitely near and dear to my heart because I certainly had lots of experience with these. So we'll tackle them one at a time. But the first is really all about marketing strategy. And you introduced the concept of four logical quadrants that any restaurant business fits into. Do you want to take it from there and sort of explain? Yeah, I mean, this this idea came to me back in the um, early 90s. Uh, there was there was a lot of, of, of emphasis on marketing. And, and one of the things that I noticed is that many restaurants really didn't have a clear understanding of what and who they were for lack of a better term. And it kind of goes back to a little bit of what we spoke about last time uh, regarding the sign. What does the sign say? So um, basically there's four quadrants or four categories into which all restaurants fall into. And these categories are based on the customer's perception. So you're either, and they all end with EST. So you're either in the best quadrant, you're either in the easiest quadrant, the cheapest, or the biggest. And depending on which quadrant or category you're in, your goal is to become the leader in that category. 
So in other words, if you're in the cheapest category, and that's okay, that's okay, as long as you're the leader in that category. Um, unfortunately, many restaurants and restaurateurs don't really understand what categories they're in. And let's take, for example, McDonald's back in the 1990s. McDonald's in the early 90s or late 80s, early 90s, there's no doubt they were in the easiest category. There was a McDonald's either three blocks, within three blocks or three miles of where you were. Um, they had drive-throughs, they were going from single booth drive-throughs to double booth drive-throughs, and in certain cases, three booth drive-throughs. Uh, they, they were upgrading their, their POS systems, their menu systems, their, uh, there was a big focus on new stores with ingress, egress, enough parking, et cetera. So definitely they were the leader uh, their competitive advantage was that category, which was they were in the easiest category. They ran, they, they hired a, a lot of consultants to come in and survey customers and, and, and get a feel for these, where, where they were. And each survey or each consultant that came in basically put them in that category. They were the easiest. Uh, there was no one closer to them or close to them. So what did they do? they went after the cheapest category. So that's right around that time is when Taco Bell was coming out with the 29, 39, 49 tacos. And so McDonald's got into that, into that arena, into that category. So uh, what they did was they took their, their brand, which at that time was the Big Mac, and they, they were selling it for 99 cents, buy one, get one, and that kind of stuff. Then they started selling hamburgers for 29 cents, and it started on a February 29th, uh, and it went real well. So then they started, they kept the, 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 that program, and they brought in the cheeseburgers. So it was 29 cent hamburgers, 39 cent cheeseburgers, and they got into that, trying to be the cheapest. Uh, leader in the cheapest category, but that wasn't w their competitive advantage. So what happened to McDonald's uh, during that time is they got stuck into this discounting categories, so to speak, and they really couldn't get out of it because every time they tried to get out of it, you would see an impact to sales uh, because people were, you know, they were going there for 29 cent hamburgers. Mm -hmm. And basically what they did, in my opinion, was they des they destroyed the brand product, which was the Big Mac. In other words, once they started to raise the price of the Big Mac, it just didn't taste the same. You know, because you got used to a Big Mac being 99 cents. And at 99 cents, it was a good value. For sure. And it, but once you bring it up to $3, it just doesn't taste as good. So nowadays, you, you hardly ever see advertisement for a Big Mac from McDonald's. Um, and, and basically, I, I, I blame it on that, that era where they tried to, to be dominant in a category which they weren't the leader in. Well, let me ask you something. What's coming to mind here is they were already the leader in the easiest category. Okay, and McDonald's being the largest franchise company in the world, bar none, with the biggest name recognition of just about any brand anywhere. So they're doing a certain amount of business at the price point that's making them a solid profit. And what I think I heard you say is they suddenly tried to go into the cheapest category in addition to already being the leader in the easiest category. 
and now their profits are suffering, they've discounted and cheapened the product, and now no one feels like there's a value paying what full price should be or, or used to be. Is all of that correct? Yes, I mean, there's, there's a little bit more to it than that because, uh -huh. um, you know, from a corporate pers perspective, uh, it's all about sales because that's how they make their money based sure. on royalties from the franchisees. Okay. So um, they, at that time, I don't believe they were concerned with the franchisees profitability. They were only concerned with the franchisee sales. So it's very difficult to survive mm. uh, on 29 cent hamburgers and 39 cent cheeseburgers. Exactly right. I, I um, mean, yeah. So you had a lot of uh, discontent mm. among the franchisees and it was just a real bad time for McDonald's. The stock dropped. Um, there was a lot of changeover or, or turnover up in top management. And I think it all goes back to uh, trying to be a leader in a category in which uh, wasn't their category to begin with. Um, it's funny, while we're on the topic, um, I had a big discussion uh, last Saturday uh, with, with a group of friends and we were talking about donuts and who's the leader in the donut category. Well, here in, in Miami, uh, when you think of best donut, you think of the salty donut. Okay. And the salty donut is maybe 400 square foot little donut shop uh, over in Wynwood, which is not the best town area of town. And um, I, I, I told my girlfriend about two weeks ago, let's go on a Saturday morning. And, and she, I mean, I, I dragged her tooth and nail to the, I don't want to go there. Why, why are we driving to buy a donut? Um, but anyway, once we got there, she loved it. And they have like specialty donuts and they're oversized donuts and, you know, they're kind of funky donuts. And she loved it. And this was really interesting. And this is what makes them the best because the best is, is, is basically the perception of, of the customer. And what they did, they had a Polaroid, this little Polaroid camera. And inst instant camera, you know, remember you take a picture and the thing slides that out. That was big in the have... 70s. Do they still yeah. do they still have those or you're talking I about didn't... a vintage camera that still works? Right. I, well, they're selling them now, which oh. I wasn't aware of. Okay. Um, so they're making a comeback. Hmm. And but they had one there and, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. So what happens is after you buy your donut, uh, you go and you take a picture. So we took a picture of ourselves and then they give you a, a clothes hanger clip. And, and you get to put the picture on their Christmas tree. Oh. So think about it. So yes. now you, you got this picture, so what do you do? You take a picture of the picture and you put it on Instagram and you talk about your experience. That's smart. The salty donut. Yes. And that picture is gonna stay there through Christmas. So every for time sure. you send friends over there, they're gonna look for your picture and then they're gonna put take a picture of that picture and put it on Instagram. So it's great advertisement. I, I thought to myself, who in their right mind would open up a a donut shop in this area of town and and you know, high end. It was expensive. Two donuts and two coffees were seventeen dollars. So really? Yeah. Wow. But that's, it was but that's it was really high end. I've never heard of that. But it was but it was packed. Wow. And and, huh. and and the point is people get in their cars and go out of their way to have this donut. Mm. 
Yes, and, yes. And, and now the buzz is out there and people are talking about it. And I love that photo idea. I think that's really smart. And it's, and it's great. And mm. the key is, obviously, they're the leader in their category. So that is, that is really great. Um, I think there's a lot of takeaways from that idea alone. So other than, okay, so you were talking about a donut shop being the best. Are there other types of restaurants that fit into that best quality, like five-star type restaurants, chef-operated restaurants, that sort of thing? They would also fit into that high-quality, high-price point best category? Is that right? Right. Well, again, it goes back to whether it's the best or, or not the best. It's the perception of the customer. So when the customer, you ask an individ- yeah. somebody, you know, which is the best steakhouse? You know, mm-hmm. what's the first thing that comes to mind? Which is the best uh, seafood restaurant? Well, and here in South Florida, the first thing that'll come to mind is Joe's Stone Crab. Oh uh, yeah, I'm familiar with Keep Joe's. that leading position in that category. And that, and when they, they, they advertise and market themselves, that they market themselves as the best and not necessarily as the easiest or the cheapest or the biggest, et cetera. And that's where the mistakes come in. So taking a step back, it, uh, once again, it's really about uh, restaurateurs understanding what their restaurants are or who they are and being sure. able to promote that. All right. What would you say the let's talk about the biggest category? That's restaurants trying to be everything to all people. Um, yes, there's 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 different ways of looking at it. For example, if you think about let's just say sodas, if you think about, you know, beverages, the first thing that pops to mind is Coke. Uh, when you think about uh, adhesive bandages, you think of band-aid. I mean, I mean, these are the first things that pop into your mind. So that's mm-hmm. one of the um, uh, ways to look at the biggest category. But it's also trying to be all things to all people. So if you have a sports bar, you definitely want to be the sports bar if you're if you're if you want to be in the biggest category or the leader in the biggest category. Well, it's the one with the most seats, the most TVs, the most uh, ambiance, the most. You know, every time you think of something, it's the most, the biggest menu variety. Per se, so that's kind of where you are in that category. So you have to uh, keep your competitive advantage as the leader. And again, you're going to be around for a long, 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 long time. And if you're not the leader, you risk not being around for a long time. So that's marketing strategy, as simple as it gets. And I know in the advertising world they call it positioning, but every operator when they start a business they should have a marketing plan. They should really think through who the target customer is. There's market research that has to happen. You really need to zero in on all those things. The brand, you know, what does the brand represent? And where's the location? And who are you going to market to within that location? Is it you know, corporate workers because you're in an industrial area or a city area? Is it suburbia and you're going to target residences? All that kind of stuff really fits into this category. And then you get even, you know, closer to dialing it in with the quadrant idea that Jesse's presenting here. You know, what does your customer think of your place and what are they looking for? And that's what you need to deliver in the greatest volume in order to find that success. I'm really glad you brought that topic up. Why don't we shift gears now to sort of uh, Let's talk about financials a little bit. Let's talk about percentages versus profits. I mean, I know that in working with lots of people, I see this happen all the time. You know, everyone's got sort of food cost in mind. You become obsessed with having a low food cost, and that is sort of misleading in some ways. 
I, I find that to be probably the biggest issue that um, I see when I go to restaurants or restaurants that are that need help. Uh, usually, you when you speak to the management, they're talking to you in percents. And as somebody that's been in the business all their lives, uh, all his life, I can tell you that not once um, did I ever take a percent to the bank. The four restaurants that I owned, I only took dollars to the bank. So I thought only in dollars. And I really didn't care uh, so much about percents. It was really all about the bottom line. And I'll give you an example. Uh, my first restaurant, which probably was the most profitable restaurant, my food cost was close to 40%. And if I told people in the industry my food cost is 40%, they would say, well, he has no controls and he's not on top of it and they're robbing him blind. And let me tell you something, nobody had more control on food costs than I did. Um, that 40% had to do with um, me street fighting and getting people into the restaurant. So there was a lot of discounting uh, being done. I was doing a lot of catering, um, et cetera. And I was really wanted to make sure that I brought people into the restaurant. In other words, I wanted butts and seats. And the more butts and seats I had, at the end of the day, the more penny profit I made and the more money I made took to the bank. Um, so percents are really tricky. Uh, I, can, I can share with you an experience I had a few months ago with a fine dining restaurant and I'm, I'm talking to the manager and they get a call for um, uh, to book a party and I mean you talk about really just putting obstacles in the way of bringing customers into your into your establishment now this is a this is a beautiful restaurant probably one of the most scenic and beautiful views in in South Florida uh, but they're struggling to get people in the door and and the manager just would not budge on on pricing and and and, and putting all types of conditions on this event. And afterwards, I and he didn't get it, of course. And I asked him, and, he, and I said, well, you know, why don't you, you know, give them a pack, give them a deal, get them in. And he said, no, because, you know, I got to watch my food costs. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, you had a hundred people that were going to come into your restaurant, experience the ambiance, experience the great food, experience the great service. I mean, how many of those hundred were you going to recapture to come back? And you decided not to, not to bring them in because you were worried about your food cost percent? That makes ab that's penny wise and dollar foolish. Um, so operators out there really need to take a look at um, percents versus dollars. Now I can let's go back to my earlier days uh, when I worked for corporations. It was all about percents, and why? Because uh, as as an owner, as a manager, as a corporate corporate director or um, you you get what you inspect, not what you expect. And if you're inspecting percents, then you're going to get percents at the cost of um, actual profits and dollars. If you're an owner, 
You should never, you should, uh, your complete focus should be on dollars and how to increase dollars going to the bank because cash flow is king. Uh, it certainly is. And, and any other perspective, uh, you're not going to be around for, for very much or you're going to be calling us to come in and help you and explain this concept to you. But very important that you really look at uh, at, at dollars versus percents. And while we're on the topic of food costs, very few managers really understand food costs. Now, everybody knows how to calculate their food costs, and everybody knows how to give you the percent, but they don't understand what that percent means. And, you know, you'll, you'll go and talk to, to managers and operators, and they'll tell, oh, my food cost is 20%, and we're doing great. Whoa, whoa, time. What does that mean? What is that 20 per, compared to to what compared to who and you should be comparing it to you um, So what I mean by that is Maybe that's a good food cost in general But not a food a great food cost for you specifically Because it doesn't really show controls and to, in order to understand food costs We have to go back to the basics and you have to understand I call it base food a lot of people call it uh, optimum food and that's very simple you, you take your your product mix times your your selling price and uh, times your purchase price and, and so there's your base food and then to that you add you know, complete waste, raw waste, your your stat, your employee meal, and now that should give you um, that's that's the breakdown of your food cost. So now, based on that, what should your food cost really be? And that's a measure of control. And and you would definitely have targets uh, for all those individual items, such as you know you know, complete waste, raw waste, your stat, etc. But it's all based on uh, your optimum food uh, uh, cost. I'm and totally in agreement. Really yeah. Uh, the controls is key. Okay. So a lot of people, I think we're hopefully shifting mindsets because you, as you said it, you take profit to the bank, not a percentage. And, you know, the mindset of having a low food cost percentage is really misleading, but to have a solid food cost, it's all about controls and efficiency so that you minimize your waste and your spoilage and your theft and all those things. But it's perfectly fine to have a 40% food cost if the profit dollars are greater than selling items that have maybe a lower food cost but less profit. That's what I'm hearing from you. That's yeah. what yeah. was my experience when I ran restaurants. Yeah. Well, a 40% food cost is if your base food is, I don't know, 36 Mm -hmm. then then your controls are four percent and is is that four percent are you doing a good job with that four percent uh, as far as controls the as far as your optimum food that's dependent on your pricing structure so you know what are you pricing your your menu items at and if you're doing outside events obviously you're going to be doing a lot of discounting so it's going to affect your optimum food right so that's going to go up but your but your controls should not so your your condiment percent your your stat your your uh, waste or your raw and complete waste those you should have a control over and that's how i used to uh, rate my managers uh, you have a manager at the end of the year and you're looking at a 10 15 20 thousand dollar bonus and well my food cost was you know you know 25 oh and and the other managers was 28 so so 
you know, who gets the bonus? Well, wait a minute. Let's let's take a look now because maybe that that 25 was really not the best job. Maybe the 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 manager that that had the 28% food cost actually did a better job of controlling his food costs. He was just in a different area of the city and the product mix was different. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe he was selling, you know, lower, pro you know, lower uh, cost items, etc. Um, maybe they were doing, uh, you know, building sales by, by giving, you know, more discounts. You know, you really got to look into it and you can't just live by percents. And you have to be very careful also with P&Ls. And, uh, you know, you know. I have operators that come to me, well, you know, it, it says I'm making money. Well, you know, it, you got to be careful with P&Ls. Um, you know, you're really looking at cash flow and cash going into the bank. For sure. And, you know, and that's, we may that's have, the target. We may have touched on this briefly in our first episode a couple of weeks ago. And I think I mentioned to you that, you know, I work with lots of restaurants when I consult. And one of the very first things that I like to dig deep into, you mentioned, is the product mix report, of course, which shows the volume of sales for every single thing on that menu. And if, they've ha if they have costed out the menu, I really love to do that exercise to see, okay, in each category, the appetizers or the entrees, which items are the most profitable and what is that percentage or that profit spread in difference? of dollars that actually go to the bank every time you sell this appetizer versus that one or this entree versus that one. And I am so often, no, I won't say I'm surprised anymore because I see it so commonly that there is often a huge, you know, several dollar difference in the appetizers and seven to $12 difference in, in a, you know, the entrees because they're selling the lower profit items in greater volume than the higher profit. And they're paying their cooks just as much to do, you know, to work just as hard. And they're not maximizing their profit from that menu by virtue of how it was designed in the first place, you know. And I just kind of shake my head and I say, back to the drawing board, you know. This has got to change if you want to stay in business. I, I agree 100% with you. I mean, I think that operators need to be more attuned um, they have to look at the numbers, but then they have to go into the kitchen and see what's going on as well. And they have to look at, at customers and what they're buying and why are they buying it. You know, are, are, are the waitstaff promoting the lower cost items or the lower margin items? I mean, what's really going on beyond the numbers? Sure. Uh, because the numbers just tells you where to look. Um, but then you have to go out and find out the real reasons why those numbers are, are popping up, as opposed to just sitting in an office and saying this number needs to change, uh, just in, just because. Um, so operators really need to get their hands dirty, um, and and like we said last last episode, they have to street fight. So street fight with the uh, categories, but you got to get your hands dirty and you got to be unpredictable. But you have to um, you have to be able to go into your restaurant and understand what's, what's, what's happening and, and what's going on and to really understand your customers because um, maybe, you know, that, that low margin item is just so good that that's what everybody wants. So do we raise the price on it? So now we have to make a decision. Do we want to increase Yeah, what will the market really bear on that item? If it's that popular, is it going to lose a tremendous amount of sales if you do raise the price? And even if you do, you're going to move people into other items that you know they might make a higher profit on. So 
you know, there are certain adjustments that you can make. Can you substitute an ingredient? Can you change portion sizes? Can you raise prices? I mean, these are all strategies in the short term. You know, can you sort of highlight things on the menu that say this is most popular or highlight them or box them in or whatever. And you really, you know, you can move people into the areas that you want to sell more of and train your staff to make those recommendations as well. I mean, these are all ideas that you can implement before you actually redesign a menu for greater profit. But yeah, lots of operators aren't doing any of these things. No, and also, you know, one, one other thing is you really look at your competition. Mm -hmm. and, and, and see how it fits into that whole scheme. So it's just a, a, just a, a big strategy that you're using. Um, but going back to, to how we started this conversation, you know, it's all about dollars and, and making sure that the dollars are getting down to the, well, I'm not even going to say the bank, getting to the bank. Uh, that's the key. So, um, you know, it's okay to look at percents, um, as red flags to start the process of looking further into it. But don't rely uh, totally on percents to judge whether you're doing a good or bad job because I've seen some of the lowest food cost percent restaurants close. And I've seen what some of the highest uh, percentage food cost restaurants have uh, been around for 15, 20 years. For sure, that's great advice. Let me switch gears really quickly because I'm totally on your page about the, the food cost percentage versus the profits. Okay, that is so, so clear to me and I hope we made that clear to the audience. But let's talk about the labor side of things. Here you want to get a lower labor cost just based on being efficient with your scheduling, making sure that you're diligent that when the place slows down, you're letting people go and that you, uh, you know, maybe you have a rotation where the kitchen line, which is your most expensive labor, they're not all there after hours clean in the kitchen. Maybe two people stay and then the next day they can go home early and another two people stay and clean. You know, it's all about figuring things out. And, and dialing in your schedule to find what I call your sweet spot. And that's where your sales in a typical week, you know, are strong and that you've got a really efficient labor against those sales week after week. And it's not all over the map where one week you got a 28% labor cost and the next week it's a 35 and you're just not monitoring that, those details that give you the efficiencies. I've, I've always found that to be true. Well, just like just like food costs, your labor costs, you, you manage your labor costs. You don't Definitely. cut your labor costs. Managing um, is the key word. Is the key word. And mm -hmm. unfortunately for those uh, in the audience that, that work for, for big companies, um, I mean, back in the 80s, you know, you, when you work for a corporation, for example, um, at the end of the month, they would look at your P&L and, and analyze your, your labor. Uh, and then as the POS systems became more sophisticated, it was you know almost weekly and then uh, daily, and now it's every 15 minutes. So if you're working for fast food or fast casual, uh, there's somebody somewhere looking at your labor every 15 minutes. And uh, I'm sure many of those uh, uh, audience members will relate to the fact that they're about to get a phone call uh, from some uh, regional, uh, supervisor telling them to send people home people home 
And sometimes you're just stuck in that position and there's really nothing you can do because, I mean, that's just the nature of that beast. However, that, obviously that's not the way to build a business. That's not the way to build profits. I've always looked at labor as a tool to increase sales and increase my profit. And I've always looked at it that way. Um, with the amount of money, uh, the amount of, of wages that I pay my employees, uh, with the hours that I use, and one has to be very uh, astute to 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 managing labor, because all too often we might send somebody home, um, and then all of a sudden we get a rush, unexpected rush. So you have to be able to balance it. A lot of it has to do, obviously, with uh, you know. Uh, technical information that you can gather. Uh, sure. A lot of it has to do with uh, trends, history, history, and a lot of it has to do with experience and just a little bit with gut. But never, never, you know, if it doesn't feel right sometimes, just don't do it. But as we said before, it's about managing uh, labor and doing everything that you can. Uh, when you look at labor, is how can I, how can I use this to increase sales? And, and therefore increase my profits. And that's the approach that operators should be taking. And in and, and most cases, it means adding somebody onto the ship in order to be able to turn tables quicker, in order to provide better service and, 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 and get repeat business, uh, et cetera. So let's start looking at these line items a little bit different than we have in the past. You know, I always had a lot of um luck or success, you might say, by cross-training my people so that they could perform multiple jobs, work in multiple positions or stations. And then we also had an on-call policy, which worked really, really well. So even if we cut staff early and then all of a sudden the unexpected happens and the bus shows up, you know, I had two or three people that I could call that we fairly rotated, you know, on a weekly basis that were willing to come back in and we'd give them an incentive to do so. And we didn't have to use it that often. It happened occasionally, but that gave me a certain comfort level of knowing that the backup was there if I needed it. But if I didn't need it, you know, I was managing my labor efficiently. Yeah, and that's exactly it. You were managing your, your labor line and, and you put um, strategies in, in place and, and it sounds like you had strategic reserve in case anything did happen, uh, you were able to spin on a dime. And so you got to take those things into consideration as well. Um, and, and those are key. Those are key to these line items. And, and again, what are we talking about? Let's not focus so much on the percents. Let's just focus on using those lines as tools to increase sales and therefore increase profits. Excellent advice, as always. Is there anything we've missed today, Jesse? Anything else you want to talk about? I, you know, one of the things I wanted to see if we could touch on, and maybe this is yeah. more appropriate for another episode, but uh, mm -hmm. there's a lot of, of mistakes when it comes to franchising, both from the potential franchisee perspective and the franchisor perspective. Now, I was, um, I worked as a business consultant for several of the food service giants, so I understand the franchising side of it, uh, and as a, and I also had a franchise restaurant, so I understand it from a franchisee perspective, and um, many, 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 uh, uh, young entrepreneurs, uh, 
getting into our industry, um, decide to go the franchise route. And my my advice is always to take a step back and really, really, really be honest. Take the enthusiasm out of it. And what is the franchisor selling? And and you have to understand that. Are they in the restaurant business or are they in the commissary business? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know, you, you enter into a franchise and basically they're, it's, it's about them selling you their products. So it's not about them being in the restaurant business. They're in the commissary business. They're there to sell you products and at a much higher uh, cost than you could probably get it out on it. You know, with your own vendors, so you really have to be aware of what's going on in that relationship uh, that you're getting into because it is a marriage, and 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 many franchisees go into into it blind. You also have to uh, understand that um, you know how much how much do you really expect to make uh, from these franchises? I think. Um, um, a recent study came out, I think 51% of franchisees make $50,000 or less. So is this really what yeah. what, what you want to do? Is that is that the plan? Um, also, you really want to take a look at how much money do you have and um, you know, can can you can you risk going? At, do you have the working capital and the idea to go in and start your own a restaurant and be able to hold out while you build the brand? If you decide to go the franchising route, what, what about their brand? How how expandable is their brand? Is it a local brand? Will it get to a national status? And the other thing is, do you want to be a big fish in a little pond, or you want to be a uh, a, a little fish in a, in a big pond or whatever that saying is, you really have to understand yourself and what you're, what you're getting into. And the first thing that I would do as a franchisee is really investigate how many lawsuits that, that franchisor is in. And if you see that we're looking at anywhere from 3 to 4% of the franchisees are suing the franchisor, run, run. Yeah. Run because it's yeah. just going to go bad. On the wall. It, it's going to go bad. And um, from a franchisor's perspective, you have to understand that once once you bring in these franchisees and they they become successful, uh, it's no longer about your concept. Um, in many cases, the franchisees believe it was because of that, uh, not because of your of, of your concept. So uh, you have to be very careful with that and who you bring into the fold. And again, and again, another reason why you see so many lawsuits in the in the franchise industry. And you also have to have to have the, the, the infrastructure in place because what are you really selling as the franchisor? I, I just had a um, about two months ago, I had a meeting with uh, somebody that wanted me to help them franchise their business. And I looked and I said, well, you know, what what is it that you're franchising? I mean, I can go across the street and open open this concept actually probably do it better. Uh, why would I pay you 
what are you offering me? You don't have any support. You don't have any marketing people. You don't have, you know, from an operations perspective, um, the store is really not operationally sound. So what is it that you're selling me? A name that, you know, will it be around in two years? You know, Didn't really have a brand established, didn't really have goodwill, didn't have a huge following. And then all those systems weren't really templated for someone else to take over and do it the same way, right? Yeah, absolutely. There was real, there, there was no structure. And as the franchisor, he didn't have people in place to, to sure. not only support the franchisee, but also to oversee the franchisee to make sure that they're doing it correctly. Um, there is franchising is is a great topic and and hopefully we'll be able to touch on really get deep into franchising one day uh, because I would like there's to do so, that. There's, yeah, yeah, there's there so really, many problems multifaceted and just let, let's leave on this note you know it it may be and I hate to use the word easy because nothing about the restaurant business is easy, but the whole point of a franchise is getting an established brand that gives you all the support, the name recognition, the instant business as soon as you open the doors, and there's a tremendous amount that goes into opening that store, but it's not like you're starting from scratch and you gotta do everything yourself. So that's what's appealing about a franchise, but then when somebody's got the door open, then suddenly they start to think, oh, you know, maybe I could do this better and I got my own ideas and I want to add this to the menu. And there are lots of restrictions with most franchises where you got to stick to that formula and you really can't put your own stamp on it. You represent that brand and it's not your own brand, you know. So I've seen that happen quite a bit, too. Yeah. And, and we can we can talk about all the different you know stories that, that come out of the yeah. franchise because there, it, it's great success. Uh, yeah. A lot of success stories. A lot of millionaires have, have, have come through the franchising system. Uh, but there's also been a lot of nightmares if you get involved with the wrong franchise. Well, that's great. That's great advice, too. So word to the wise, do your homework. And like Jesse says, check in if you're interested in a franchise, do your homework, dig deep, dive in see if they've got lots of lawsuits and see if they're a reputable business, what their, you know, what their existing franchisees say about the business and, and start with that. So Jesse, once again, great conversation. Really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, um, it's been great. Thank you again for having me on. I'm sure we'll do it again real soon. Thanks again. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, Mr. Jesse Vasquez. Great guest. Thanks again for being with us and we'll see you next time. Wasn't that episode an eye-opener? Market leadership and high profit, two lofty goals that every operator should strive for. Why else are you in this business? Listen, I know you got a thousand details to run your business, and time gets stretched real thin. But these systems are critically important to your success, your future, your freedom. And I know you don't have time to create these systems on your own. So do yourself a favor. Go to restaurantrockstars.com and take a look at my academy system. It will help you dial in your profit, maximize marketing firepower, and build your dream team staff. You've got nothing to lose. We offer a no-questions-asked money-back guarantee. So go out there and rock your own restaurant. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it on iTunes. It's free, and that way you won't miss an episode. And we'd also appreciate a review, which will help other operators and managers find us. Now, stay tuned for our next big episode. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast.
for lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. And while you're there, download a copy of the book, Rock Your Restaurant. It's a game changer. See you next time.